Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So the benefits that you get from breastfeeding, so the breast milk contains human milk oligosaccharides, which you and I have talked about before, HMOs. HMOs, in short, have literally zero nutritional value to the child. There's 200 of them, and they feed the healthy microbiome living within the newborn. So in other words, HMOs are Mother Nature's way of feeding the bugs that live in the baby's newborn gut. These are prebiotics. So you get that and you get antibodies, which protect against infection. There are a number of other beneficial factors that you will find in human breast milk. So you want to continue to do this for as long as humanly possible because it helps the development of your child and it protects them. This is the perfect food. This is evolutionary food. This is basically mother nature saying to us, this is what you're supposed to be doing. That's Dr. Will Bolswitz or Dr. B. And this is episode 81 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Howdy friends, here we go, back together again. They say time goes fast when you're having fun and these weeks are flying, so must be doing something right and hope you are too. It's great to have you here with me today. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill, physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast. Each week, I get to sit down with super cool, super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, and so much more to have conversations that can help all of us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. Today is another Q&A with my good friend, Dr. Will Bolswitz, gastroenterologist from South Carolina. And these episodes are proving quite the popular ones, so I'm sure Dr. B will be back on the show again in no time. In this episode, we continue to go through lots of common questions surrounding gut health. If you have missed the previous episodes that Dr. B and I have done together and want to learn more about gut health, I certainly recommend going back and tuning in to those. Our first episode, episode 17, was on gut health in general, which provides a really nice overview of how everything works. Then we did an episode on ex-vegans and where they may be going wrong with their gut health and nutrition. Then we had our first Q&A, and this is our second Q&A episode, so a few to go through. In each of them, Dr. B drops a ton of knowledge, so you are sure to learn a plethora of evidence-based information about the gut. Now, before we jump into today's episodes, let's talk quickly about nitrates. I'm sure you have heard that nitrates in red meat are carcinogenic. But hang on, there are nitrates in green leafy vegetables and other plants too, which are supposedly beneficial. How does this work? What's the difference? Well, friends, it comes down to how they are packaged. Nitrates in processed meat, when cooked, turn into nitrosamines, which are 100% carcinogenic compounds. They're known to cause cancer. Whereas in fruits and veg, the nitrates are packaged with polyphenols and antioxidants, which see the nitrates convert to nitric oxide, a 
powerfully beneficial molecule that promotes arterial health. Just like comparing refined sugar to naturally occurring sugar, how they are packaged completely affects the way the body metabolizes them. So I hope that clears it up for you. All right, friends, let's get into this Q&A and hear from Dr. B. See you on the other side. Dr. B, welcome back to the Plant Proof Podcast. It feels great to be back in the Plant Proof uh, recording studio here. <laughs> a little makeshift studio in the in the Airbnb here in East Village, New York, Manhattan. Yeah, that's cool. I was reading the history of where we are right now. And it's it's really fascinating, you know, to think about that 200 years ago, this was... I guess a little more than 200 years ago, this was farm country and owned by a Dutch farmer who ended up being a, you know, the United States, obviously the American revolution happened and he was a loyalist to the British. And so after the war was over, the United States won and they took the land from him. And, you know, and I just think about, gosh, how valuable was that land that they took away? I mean, right now you, gosh. Imagine like how much it would cost you to get that land back. It's crazy. And how quickly that's that's changed. Yeah. Two hundred years, you said, right? Well, even the evolution of this of this neighborhood. You know, it's sort of I, I find it interesting to look at the history of neighborhoods within a city like New York because they change very quickly. And so this was this was a pretty beat up area not that long ago. Well, you you've only got to go and do John Joseph's walking tour. Have you heard of that? No. So John does a, a walking tour. I've done it. Got to do it. You got to do it some sometime. He does it in the all but the winter months of New York. Uh-huh. It starts. It starts around Union Square, uh-huh. but it's very much a, a, an East Village tour. Uh-huh. And he talks about how this area changed and what went down in the sixties, seventies, even the eighties when he was growing up here. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting tour. So if anyone is in New York. And he gives it himself. He gives it himself. You're he kidding. Does it. Yeah, he does it himself. Uh, he gets about 20 to 50 people per tour there. Wow. Any Anyone from a 16-year-old kid up to a 70-year-old woman. Yeah. And everyone is loving it. Yeah. Is it PG-13? It's, it's definitely not PG-13. <laughs> I mean, there's people on every corner yelling out, hey, John. <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 a fun one. So, yeah, I'd recommend anyone in New York definitely check that out. Yeah. And we should do a shout-out. Last night we, we went to a place called Jar, Jar, Jar. And this is not a plug. Neither of us know anything about this restaurant other than it's Mexican and it was, it was good. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. They, I got this burrito and, and again, like we're just talking about what we had for dinner. We paid for our bill. They did not pick up the tab and I got this burrito and it was like a spicy burrito, vegan, of course. And it came out looking like the Mexican flag. <laughs> it, was it was like a, it was the most beautiful burrito I've ever seen in my life. And it tasted just as good. And when we got there, actually, they were quoting like three hour waits. I mean, somehow we snuck in up on the bar there, but super popular. We were very aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now you're, you're going back to South Carolina. 
later today, right? That's where you live. Yeah, I live in Charleston, South Carolina. For for those of you who are from outside the U.S. or have never visited Charleston, South Carolina, it was, we're on the Atlantic coast. It's a coastal city. Um, it's actually one of the original cities in the United States. And so we have a tremendous uh, history. There's actually a historic district downtown, which is really cool. You don't need to spend, like you come to my city, you come to Charleston, you don't need to spend a dollar. Just go downtown and walk around and you will have the best time. It's beautiful. Um, and the weather is good. The beaches are there. And so, I, yeah, I love my city. And what's a, what's a typical week look like for you in, in South Carolina? And well, work and, and family and everything. As you know, and, and maybe some of the, your listeners know, I, I'm a full-time gastroenterologist. So that's what I do for a living. I, I work as a medical doctor. I take care of people with digestive issues. And so I have a clinic that I work in. And I, I'm fortunate that you know part of the reason I'm able to do the things that I do, like do these podcasts, do my Instagram, and even write this book that I wrote. The reason I'm able to do that is because we have a practice that values having a life beyond just being a medical doctor. So I work four days a week. So every single week, I will take a day off. This past week, I took a day off and I went to the beach with my kids. It was spectacular. I actually, it's funny. I, I thought of you because I used a sunscreen called Australian Gold. Oh, there you go. I know it. <laughs> do you guys use Australian Gold or do you use Miami Gold? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that works, right? I bet, yeah, Australian Gold's a big brand. So yeah, so I, I, I'm going to be seeing patients all week. My, my, my schedule tends to be broken up. I do a lot of procedures. So I do endoscopy. I do upper endoscopy. I do colonoscopy. And um, that's about 50% of my time. So among the four days that I work this week, about two of them, I'll be in the clinic seeing patients and about two of them, I'll be doing procedures, trying to help people. It's full on. Busy, busy. All right, let's let's jump into it. So we've got another Q&A episode today. We've got some incredible questions that have come in from the Plant Proof community. Shout out to you guys because these questions actually are incredible. So thank you very much for getting involved. We're both very, very appreciative of the engagement and, and sort of the excitement around learning more about gut health. So first question. Hey, guys, thanks for doing these Q&As. I learned so much from episode 17 that you guys did together. So that was the first episode that we did, which is where we dove, I guess, a bit deeper into how the gut works, microbiome, dysbiosis, a lot more sciencey stuff. So if you haven't listened to that, jump back. So this guy goes on to say, I am vegan, but a lot of my friends are doing a high fat keto diet, which they have been told by various people is good for microbiome. This seems to be the opposite of Dr. B's recommendations for plant diversity and lots of fiber. I'm now wondering if I should be doing a vegan keto diet or sticking with my whole food, high carb and moderate fat diet from nuts, seeds and avocado, etc. Well, uh, let me start with this. So I, I appreciate this question. And before I jump to plant-based keto, I will start off with just keto. Let's talk about straight keto. Yeah, which is where, I th yeah, so his... In this question, his friends are just doing a standard high-fat keto diet. Sure. So standard high-fat keto is, is intended to be roughly about 70% fat, and uh, you're cutting down your carbs as hard as you possibly can. So you're cutting down your carbs to 5% or at the most 10% with the intention of trying to induce ketosis. So if you think about the math on that, then what we're talking about is 70% fat, and you're talking about 20 to 25% protein, and then 5 to 10% carbohydrates. 
keeping in mind a, a theme that we've talked about in the past, which is that carbohydrates come from plants, right? Now, this doesn't mean processed sugar. If you're eating a whole plant, that's obviously not processed sugar. It may contain sugars that could be very healthy for you or sugars that are connected together that form fiber, which could be very healthy for you. So what you're doing in this case is you're cutting down on those on those an, on, on those plant-based carbohydrates. You're ramping up your animal products to get to 70% fat. What result do we get from this? Well, we know from the study in Nature 2014 that I seem to always keep coming back to on the Plant Proof podcast, published by doctors Lawrence David and Peter Turnbaugh, that five days on a this was literally a keto diet. I mean, they did not intend it to be a ketogenic diet, but if you look at the macros of what they were eating, this was a ketogenic diet. They were 70% fat, they were 20 to 25% protein, and they were 5 to 10% carbohydrates, purely animal products, meat, cheese, eggs. And what they found is that you had a decline in the anti-inflammatory bacteria, you had an increase in inflammatory bacteria. That's not a good thing. You had a decrease in short-chain fatty acids, which heal the gut, which heal intest increased intestinal permeability, which reduce bacterial endotoxin, which heal throughout the entire body, the heart, the brain. You had a loss of that. Okay, that's not a good thing to be losing. You had an increase of a bacteria called Bilophilia wadsworthia that's been clearly associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So within just five days, you're already laying the foundations for inflammatory bowel disease. That's a disturbing thing, in my opinion. And there were a number of other things. They saw increased antibiotic resistance in the people that were eating the animal-based diet. And they also saw a ramp up of bacteria designed to produce secondary bile salts. Secondary bile salts have been associated with colon cancer. So what we're seeing is the foundations of inflammatory bowel disease, the, inflam the, the foundations of colon cancer, the foundations of, of antibiotic resistance from a ketogenic diet. And and I think it's important because you have spoken about that study before, but that wasn't a, a, a study designed to see the effects of a plant-based diet per se. Like these investigators weren't going out and saying, I want to compare vegan versus an animal-based diet. They really didn't intend this to be a nutrition-based study. What they intended this study to be is to demonstrate for the first time in humans from a biological perspective that you can use your diet to manipulate the microbiome. And so what they did is they chose extreme variation. I mean, literally, that's the polar opposite, right? A completely plant-based diet versus a completely animal-based diet. And they wanted to show that the dietary choices that you make have a major impact on the makeup of your gut microbiome. And they were successful. They were successful as a paradigm-shifting study that changed the way that I think about human biology forever. So you start with that, and there's a lot of disturbing trends that you see there. You think about animal-based diet, think about a high-saturated fat diet, and the, the way that it feeds into TMAO, which has been associated with coronary artery disease, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, chronic kidney disease, peripheral arterial disease, chronic kidney disease, I'm, I don't know if I said that twice, atrial fibrillation, congestive heart failure, not good stuff. You don't want that. And that's coming from the, the carnitine and, and choline. That's the carnitine and the choline that you find in your animal products. And then finally, what you're doing is you're building your microbiome, right? So we know that your dietary choices will determine the constitution of your, of your microbiome. Your microbiome is a reflection of what you choose to put in your mouth and swallow. 
And so you are building a microbiome that's designed for animal products. What you are doing in the process of doing that is weakening the microbiome with regard to your carbohydrates or with regard to your plant products. So now you have a microbiome that's not designed to give you short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids protect us from type 2 diabetes, protect us from hyperlipidemia, all of these other conditions. So what you have is you have a microbiome that's built for type 2 diabetes. You are built for insulin resistance. You are built for weight gain. Okay. Now, you, do, you, do you gain weight on this diet? No, because of the restrictive nature of the diet, you are not gaining weight. People lose weight. This, that's indisputable. But you are setting yourself up so that when you come off of the ketogenic diet, which all people do, you're going to have profound food sensitivity, profound insulin resistance, and profound weight gain. So you talk about yo-yo dieting. Your weight goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. This is how you do it. So I really see no health advantage to the ketogenic diet. You can artificially lower, and I know you talked about this with, in the Drew McIntyre episode, you can artificially, artificially lower your, your blood glucose because you're not introducing any carbohydrates, right? You can't raise your blood glucose unless you introduce carbohydrates. Yeah, so you get a bit of a, a bit of a band-aid effect. It looks good on a, on a blood glucose test, but the underlying pathology of insulin resistance is actually getting worse. It's a mirage. Yeah. It's a mirage. It's completely fake. And you, so you're getting less healthy on the inside, even if you think that you're, the indices or like the markers of diabetes are under control, you're becoming less healthy on the inside. And so it's, it's in some ways short-term gain and it's major long-term loss as far as I'm concerned. And it's, to me, one of the studies that, I mean, this is like, to me, it kind of blows your mind to imagine that there's a diet that exists that can cause you to lose weight and make you less healthy in the process. But there it is. There it is. So now let's move on to plant-based keto and talk about that. So plant-based keto is, let's, let's say that we're doing completely plant-based diet. And you are eliminating, you are eliminating the animal products completely from diet. And you could even say that you're eliminating the processed foods from your diet. That's fine. We'll do it a whole foods, plant-based. So no coconut oils and and things like that. I I, I would find it hard to believe that you can accomplish this without the coconut oils, because in a plant-based keto, you're going for 70% fat. It's tough to get get the carbohydrates down enough. Right. And the protein. Exactly. And so, so, but what you're doing is you're, you're trying to play with your macros. And in the process, you are engaging yourself in a restrictive diet. You are, you are, you are trying to ramp up your fat content and reduce your carbohydrate in, intake. And in the process, you are, res, you are forced to restrict certain categories of foods in order to accomplish that. And that is the complete opposite of what you and I constantly talk about which is that we want to maximize plant-based diversity. We want simplicity. We want food in abundance, but we want whole plant foods because that's what delivers from a health perspective. So I see no advantage to the plant-based keto because you're restricting your diet, even though it's plant-based, you're restricting your diet, you're increasing the fat content by restricting carbohydrates. What are you restricting? Fiber is a carbohydrate. Fiber, fiber is a carbohydrate. So you have no choice but to reduce your fiber if you're going to restrict your carbohydrates. And so I, so I don't see any real health advantage to doing this, particularly when you look at the flip side. Why would you do this when the flip side is Dr. Neil Barnard's group and their study, 
which looked at high carb, 70% carbs coming from whole foods, low fat, unrestricted, eat as much as you want, like have five meals a day, go crazy. And they still lost weight and they still saw improvement of several markers from a metabolic perspective. Why would you play with plant-based keto, restrict your diet, potentially mess up your gut when you could go high carb and just go, just go whole foods plant-based? Honestly, let's not, let's not overcomplicate things with the macros. It's perhaps, I guess, one positive of a vegan keto diet, right, from what we've just talked over, is that there wouldn't likely be the TMAO effect, right? Correct. But on the overall spectrum, not as good as a high-carb, whole-food, plant-based diet for microbiome diversity. We, we need carbohydrates. We need fat. We need protein. At every opportunity, what we see in the studies, when you replace animal carbohydrate, I'm sorry, animal fat, animal protein with plant fat, plant protein, we see consistently across the board that you get better outcomes in your studies. So whenever possible, we want to do that. And so, yeah, do I think that a plant-based keto is better than a traditional keto, ketogenic diet? A hundred percent. I will give a standing ovation to that. Do I think that it's better than a simple concept? of diversity of plants in abundance, not worrying about macros, eat as much as you want. You're still going to lose weight. You're still going to look great in a swimsuit. Why would you mess with it? It's pretty simple. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Simon, Dr. B, you guys rock. Thank you. I'm vegetarian and having trouble letting go of dairy for health reasons. I get the ethical reasons and I understand that should be enough, but I'm interested in the health. There is a lot of marketing around dairy foods and prebiotics and probiotics that they may contain, particularly yogurt. What's your thought on yogurt? Is it beneficial? Well, first of all, I have to admit that I'm the one that submitted this question. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was not me. Um, Should have known with yeah. you guys rock. <laughs> no, because I don't, I don't eat yogurt. So the issue with yogurt, you know, I understand the idea. There's a lot, there are numerous studies out there that would lead you to believe that there are health benefits derived from consuming yogurt that includes probiotics. I, I understand where this, this person is coming from, but you have to also understand that those, who's funding those studies, right? So there's a conflict of interest when the money to support a study is coming from the dairy industry. Because then the people who are doing the study, I mean, I hate to break it to you, but I can pretty much assure you that they're not going to go and produce a negative result. And, and if, if they, they do, do wouldn't publish, they're publish. not going to publish it. They're going to bury it. So there's a bias that exists where the only thing that comes forward is the stuff that shows that there's a benefit. And if you really dig into the details of how they're doing these studies, you will find that they are basically putting everything in their favor that, you know, they're, they're carefully crafting the methodology to get everything in their favor so that they can produce the results that they want. So anytime you see, if you find a study that shows you that there's a benefit, I would encourage you to look at the fine print at the bottom of the study, which oftentimes will tell you what the funding source is. And if it's funded by dairy, to me, I don't, I don't personally accept that study, right? I need to see that this is done independently without the money coming from the actual industry that profits from the result of this publication of the study. 
And it often comes down. The tricky thing that can be done is you can set the study method up to produce the desired result, right? Right. So like there's studies out there showing that coconut oil, right, doesn't raise cholesterol as much as butter. But unless you get in there and read the, the fine print, it looks like a great outcome from for coconut oil from that study. You got me on a tangent here, but I got to say this real <laughs> quick. And then we're going to come back to dairy and answer this question because I like this guy who's ask, who's basically saying that we rock. Okay. So I like it. We have to answer the question, but let me just say this real quick that it, it's, it's always relative, right? You're always comparing when you do nutritional studies, you're always comparing one thing to another and it's points of relativity. And so it can, one thing can look better than another, but what are we comparing when we ask these questions? And this is very important because I will see people come forward and they will say that a grass fed beef is so much better than the beef that you get from the traditional uh, animal agriculture industry. So the way that I interpret that, if we're going to compare these two things, is I, I view that as basically saying, okay, is chewing tobacco healthier than smoking a cigarette? No doubt. Like it definitely, if my son is 18 years old and he's going to use tobacco, I would much rather he chew tobacco than smoke cigarettes. That's the way that I feel about it. Okay. But that being said, do I want my son doing any of those things? Heck no. They cause cancer. Very clearly they cause cancer. Does somehow grass fed beef not cause cancer, not create TMAO, not create the exact same issues that we see with regular beef? No, it does. It does. It does the exact same thing. Is it a healthier version? Yes, it is a healthier but version. But that's relative. But it's relative. So if you compare the two, you will get better outcomes with the grass-fed. Uh, there haven't been great studies to prove that, but I'm sure that they would find better outcomes. But again, it comes back to, is chewing tobacco better than smoking a cigarette? So now getting back to the question at hand, which is the yogurt, the concern that I have. So first of all- This question came from Pierre, by the way. Pierre? Yeah. Okay, nice. What's up, Pierre? So the the concerns that I have, let's first look at the way that the yogurt is produced. Is this yogurt produced the traditional way, which is to take milk, introduce a culture and allow it to actually ferment? No, because that takes a long time. That takes a long, long time and you got to be patient. What's a lot easier is for the, the food industry to make yogurt and inject a probiotic into it after they're done. That's pretty much what they're doing. So why not just take the probiotic and leave the yogurt out of it? And the problem with the yogurt is it's still yogurt. It's still yogurt. It's still a high fat dairy product, right? And so when you look at high fat dairy, what are the risks that we see associated with that? There's risk of increasing, increasing TMAO. We know that from the studies that you and I have discussed in the past. There's the animal fat that's associated with that, which is a saturated fat, which induces dysbiosis. There's increased risk of a number of different cancers. The cancer that's most clearly associated with dairy has been prostate cancer. And then I think about one of the legends of nutrition, nutritional study, which is T. Colin Campbell. T. Colin Campbell, you and I were talking about this the other day. China study. The China study, forks over knives. And T. Colin Campbell grew up on a dairy farm, went into clinical research for the, with the intent of proving that dairy is good for us. But he's a man of honesty. He's a man of integrity. And when he found the opposite, he had to change. He grew up on a dairy farm. And when he found that casein, which is a dairy protein, increases the risk of, of developing cancer, which they showed in a model uh, 
several years ago, he had to change and he did. And so mad respect to T. Colin Campbell for having the integrity and the audacity to do what is right in clinical research. The last thing I want to add is we just talked about casein. So that's a dairy protein. What's the other, what's the other dairy protein? Whey. And whey is being taken. That's been smashed. People are smashing it with workouts, right? Well, guess what? Guess what? Whey protein has been clearly associated with increased risk of TMAO. All right. Now, is it the whey protein directly or is it the stuff that comes with it? You would expect that it's the stuff that comes with it. But nonetheless, they have shown in studies that whey protein correlates with increased TMAO. So from my perspective, leave the dairy. Why would you, why would you take that when you could, if you feel like you need probiotics, take a probiotic. To round this one out, the question also touched on prebiotics. I guess they're talking about lactose, Yeah, right? Is, is lactose an important prebiotic? Lactose is not an important prebiotic, but I think in, to be completely fair and scientifically rigorous, it's easy you know, to come from a plant-based perspective and to vilify lactose. And that would be unfair because lactose actually is a prebiotic in the same way that we, you and I have talked about other FODMAPs like fructans and galacto-oligosaccharides that are also prebiotic. So many times people will vilify lactose as being this horrible thing. It's bad for you. That's not actually true. It's the other stuff in dairy that's bad for you. It's not the lactose. Gotcha. I have IBS and I'm thinking about doing intermittent fasting. Is this a question from someone else or are you just saying this? This is from someone else. I should clarify. These are are all questions from someone else. (laughs) Maybe I should say their name. No, I won't say their name just in case. They, They prefer that to be private. So next question, I have IBS and I'm thinking about doing intermittent fasting. Would this be beneficial for me to limit the amount of time food is going through my bowel and give it some rest? So I I am a believer in this concept. And let me clarify, people use the expression intermittent fasting, and I'm not going to say that it's wrong to use that expression here, but it's being applied a little bit liberally because Truly, you're not, if you do what we're about to talk about, which is time-restricted eating, TRE, if you're doing time-restricted eating, it's not really intermittent fasting because you're doing it as part of your lifestyle. It's a, it's a daily practice as opposed to intermittent fasting to me means that on some you know, occasional date, you choose to fast. Like you literally will fast you know, twice a week. And it feels like a real period of denying food. Right. As opposed to what you're about to lead into, just making it routine. As opposed to making it a part of your lifestyle, which is time-restricted eating. So are there benefits to time-restricted eating? Yes. I do believe that there are clear-cut benefits and there are benefits for gut health. There's a lot of hype related to TRE that's out there right now. And you see people jumping on this bandwagon and kind of going a little bit wild with it. Like you will see people who are going, pushing themselves, pushing themselves to go 16, 18 hours. And I meet a lot of people who... The, the approach that they take is like they'll they'll start the fast at you know 9 p.m and they'll fast until 1 p.m the next day right and that's a 16 hour fast but they start the fast at 9 p.m so they're having food right before 9 p.m so here's the key first of all the main benefits of time of time restricted eating which is basically to establish a hard time where you say look I'm done I'm not eating anymore until you know this certain time And usually that's a period of at least 12 hours, potentially more than that. The benefits are going to be seen most dominantly in the people who have a bad diet. 
So if you're eating the standard American diet with a lot of processed food and a lot of animal products, you definitely would benefit from time-restricted eating, but you'd benefit even more if you changed your diet. That's the main thing that you should do. There's, there's prioritizing that. This is not the priority over your diet. Your diet is the number one determinant of your gut microbiome, but this can help. This is a piece of the puzzle. There's all these different little pieces that you can put together. And this is one of the things I write about in my book is that there's all these different pieces that you can put together. Little things can yield big results when you're doing all these things in concert. So I do think that there's value to this, but I, I also feel like people are not getting the idea the way that they're supposed to. The idea here is that it's also tapping into your circadian biology. And what I mean by that circadian biology is the ebb and flow of your biorhythm, okay? And every life form on our planet has this. Every life form has a circadian rhythm. That includes plants. And that also includes the microbes in your gut. So when you flew from Australia to the United States and you were jet lagged, why were you jet lagged? It was because your microbiome was upset because you're throwing off your circadian rhythm because it's so used to a certain time. So it takes you a couple of days to reset your microbiome to this new circadian rhythm that you're doing, right? So the circadian rhythm is really set based upon light. The sun comes up in the morning, it goes down at night. That's the way that we were designed. We were designed to turn on with sunlight in the morning. So it's important for us to expose ourselves to sunlight in the morning. And we were designed to turn off or to slow down at night when the sun goes down. So the point from my perspective is this, to get right to the point. The point with time-restricted eating is that we need to be tapping into the circadian biology. And so what that means to me is early dinner. Early dinner doesn't have to be like three in in the afternoon. But what I'm saying is, let's not be eating at nine o'clock at night. Early dinner, 5.30, six o'clock. If you're going to have dessert, so be it. Have your dessert right there, right after dinner. And then after dinner, it's strict, just water, just water, nothing else, no other beverages, no alcohol, nothing else after dinner. All right. You have your water and at least 12 hours pass. And as far as I'm concerned, if you do 12 hours, you're doing pretty good. There's, there is some concern in the scientific community that if you push yourself further, 16 hours as part of your routine, 18 hours as part of your routine, there is some concern that you could increase your risk of developing biliary tract disease, gallstones. So it's not proven yet, but there is concern that that exists. And I kind of feel like, well, don't push yourself so hard on this. Use some of that energy to focus on other stuff. Use some of that energy to focus on other elements of your lifestyle that you can improve, including your diet, Right. But the, the point from my perspective is early dinner, no food after dinner, strictly water, and also recognize a big question that people ask is, does coffee break the fast? Of course it does. Anything that's not water breaks the fast because it's interacting with your microbiome. And once you start interacting with your microbiome, the fast is over. That leads into the next question. Thoughts on prolonged juice or water fasting for gut health? i.e. three to seven days. If your diet is poor, then you're going to feel great when you stop pounding your gut with all of these chemicals that are found in processed foods. So I can imagine that doing a juiced fast is going to feel fantastic to the person who eats the standard American diet because basically they're avoiding these unhealthy foods. It's also very easy on the gut because you're, you're eliminating the fiber. But the problem is that the fiber is what supports, that's where the prebiotics come from. 
that's what supports a healthy gut microbiome. So you are still getting the phytochemicals, but most juices, most juices that I see commercially are heavy on the sugar. They put a lot of fruit in there because that's what people want. People don't want a bitter juice. People want a sweet juice. So you have this sugar enriched beverage that is devoid of fiber. And you're doing this for several days in a row. And then you're going to return to your old diet. What did you accomplish? You spent a lot of money. You really didn't change anything in the long run. Because when you return to your old diet, it's not like you magically corrected something in your gut and it's going to stay that way. You temporarily changed your microbiome during those three days. And now you're going back to your old microbiome because you were going back to your old diet. So to me, I would much rather see people do sustained, small changes over the course of time than to do some sort of, you know, hey, I'm doing this detox. I'm doing this fast. I'm doing this. And it's like a discrete period of time. And then you go back to your old way of life. You didn't accomplish anything. I'm sorry. Maybe you felt good, but you really didn't get yourself to a better place. That makes sense. A lot of sense. Next question. How does the probiotic in tempeh for example, react when cooked? Tempeh, miso, other things that may be exposed to high heat. The problem is that the, the probiotic, the living probiotic will actually be destroyed. Does that mean that there's literally zero value to the fermented food? No, because the fermented food has other nutritional advantages that, that you get regardless of whether the probiotic are alive or not. One of the major advantages that I see that I think is pretty cool is the creation of exopolysaccharides. All right, so exopolysaccharides are basically fiber that has been transformed through the fermentation process. And it's even easier for your gut to process this fiber. It's like prepackaged for you in, in, in a way where you just, you can have it and it's gonna be, it's gonna give you those prebiotics. It's gonna give you what you need, but it's not gonna be as difficult for your gut to digest it. So you still get all that. But when you expose it to high heat, you are killing the probiotic bacteria, or at least the, the bacteria that are alive there. And this is the reason why, for example, when I use miso in soup, I will cook my soup and then I will wait to add the miso until I'm actually starting to eat it and the temperature has dropped to more of a lukewarm. And then I add my miso in so that I can preserve those bacteria. And with the tempeh, can you, can you eat it raw? No doubt. So you certainly could preserve the probiotic content doing it that way. Yeah. Many people, many people would chop up some tempeh and throw it on a salad. So talking about probiotics, that's bringing me to the next question. In general, are probiotic supplements good for you? So, you know, a lot of people want to know, should I be taking a probiotic when you feel completely healthy and you have no medical problems? And I would guess that that's probably not worth your time because it's going to cost you about $40 a month for a, for a good probiotic. The issue with a probiotic is what, what people need to understand is the way that this works. And there's a reason why, from my perspective, I always say number one is diet, number two is prebiotics, and number three is probiotics. And it's in that order specifically. And that's the way I practice in my clinic. Do I recommend probiotics to people that have digestive issues? Absolutely. But it's tailored to the person and it's always after diet first, prebiotics second, probiotics third. The reason why is because every single person, you and I were talking about this, we are 99.9% the same from a genetic perspective, but we could be literally 0% the same from a microbiome perspective. Every single person has a completely unique, different microbiome. No two people are exactly the same, literally, on the entire planet. So what we're doing when we take a probiotic is we're hoping that this 
It could be one strain. It could be five strains. It could be 15 strains. We're hoping that you're going to successfully deliver these living bacteria to the place where they're supposed to be, which is the colon. And that when they arrive in the colon, they're going to interact with the living microbes that are already there inside of you in a way that produces a health benefit. In other words, that you have strengths and weaknesses within your gut. And what you're hoping is that you got the right mix in this capsule just by serendipity. You're hoping there's the right mix of bacteria in this capsule that's going to address the weaknesses in your gut and give you what you need to get a positive health benefit, right? So that's the inherent flaw with probiotics is that it doesn't matter. You can tell me that this is the best probiotic in the market. It doesn't mean that it's the best probiotic for you. A lot of variability. There's a lot of variability. And so there's a trial and error that needs to occur. Someone comes into my office and they say to me, I tried a probiotic and it didn't work. That doesn't mean that probiotics are not going to work. It also doesn't necessarily mean that you need a probiotic. But it, it, to me, when someone says a probiotic didn't work, well, then that means that that particular probiotic in that particular capsule with those particular strains in that quantity, you know, they're all different. Yeah. And that particular one didn't work for you, but perhaps we should try a different one. So tell me, you, you just mentioned there that we're assuming that you take the probiotic supplement and it ends up getting into to the colon, landing where it needs to, to sit and have a, an important function. Is there a certain technology that scientific studies and, and companies looking at probiotics used to be able to label like a, a probiotic and track where it ends up? There are, you know, that's a great question. And I haven't spent a lot of time digging into these studies to tell you the details of how they do them. Um, but I do know that they've had, they've done studies where they've looked at the efficacy of probiotics and what makes a difference. And so a couple things for people at home. First of all, the best time to take your probiotic is actually right before bedtime. Okay, because basically what you're trying to do is to sneak your probiotic, these bacteria, you're trying to sneak it through the stomach without it being exposed to stomach acid. So when do you pump stomach acid? Well, you pump stomach acid when you're digesting your food. So if you take it with a meal, you're going to be exposing it to a high level of stomach acid. Whereas if you take it right before bedtime, dinner's been over for hopefully a few hours because you had an early dinner and you take your probiotic, there's no stomach acid and it just sneaks up right, it slips right past the guard and gets down to where it needs to go. But they've also done studies looking at the capsule formation. And the bottom line is that there are delayed release capsules that exist that have demonstrated increased efficacy of delivering probiotics to where they need to go. And I will tell you that when I'm evaluating, there's a number of things that I look at when I'm evaluating the quality of a probiotic. And that's one of the things that I like to see is that there's a delayed release capsule to get to get the actual probiotic bacteria to the colon. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. That brings us to another question, similar area. So this person's talking about if they have to take an antibiotic, what can I do to minimize the damage to my gut microbiome? And is a probiotic important at this time? So there was, there's this intuitive approach that you will still continue to find in healthcare where, and I, I did this myself, it makes complete sense. You, someone takes an antibiotic, 
you should give them a probiotic afterwards to help to restore the gut flora, right? But the problem is that that was that idea was intuitive and it was based on assumptions. And what happens when we make assumptions? Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes the intuitive approach proves to not be actually the right approach. And there was a study that came out in September of last year based out of Israel. And basically what they found is that after giving someone antibiotics, if you then chase the antibiotics with a probiotic, believe it or not, you actually delay the recovery of the colon. So probiotics after antibiotics, I generally do not recommend. Now, I will say this is a little bit of a complicated topic that warrants discussion with your doctor on an individual basis. Because for example, people that have a history of a C. diff infection, C. diff is an aggressive bacteria that often will show up after antibiotics, causes colitis, can be severe, life-threatening in some cases. People with a history of a C. diff infection, there are clear-cut studies that show us that probiotics decrease the likelihood of you developing C. diff. So it may be worth it in that particular scenario for that particular person to be on a probiotic after an antibiotic. This is not just a completely broad sweeping thing that I'm saying here. But generally speaking, I do not any longer recommend probiotics after antibiotics. The general recommendation is prebiotics to restore the healthy gut microbiota. Through through food or through supplements? Well, to me, both. To me, both. So we have a study that showed us that a a person who is consuming a plant-based diet has less damage to their microbiome with antibiotics and a faster recovery after antibiotics if they're on a plant-based diet compared to an, an omnivore's diet. But on the flip side, is there an advantage to taking a prebiotic supplement? From my perspective, I do believe that there's an advantage to a prebiotic supplement in that setting. So I would do both. I would recommend plant-based diet before, during, after, and then I would also supplement with a prebiotic. But I'm also a huge believer in prebiotics because I just see patient after patient after patient who benefits in my clinic. And so the idea there around going back to your priority of food first, prebiotic, then probiotic, is that it is more important in most scenarios to be feeding the good bacteria that you already have to proliferate rather than trying to introduce new species. When you take an antibiotic, you're dropping napalm in there and it's indiscriminate. It's wiping out good guys and bad guys. So and that's, you know, that's the downfall of antibiotics. This, this is not surgical precision. It's not laser precision to take out the bad guys. So you wipe out good guys and bad guys. You're hoping the good guys will come back first. Well, how do you get the good guys to come back first? Guess what you do? You empower them. You feed them. When you feed them, they multiply, they grow, and they come back. Okay, so following on from this antibiotic chat, next question is, if I have been taking antibiotics for many years and now struggle with high FODMAP food, what's going on and what should I do? Oh, I love this question. So, you know, basically, first of all, we've talked about FODMAPs before, and I I know that you also talked about this in your podcast episode with Dr. Serena Pazricha in great detail because you guys took a deep dive on irritable bowel syndrome. So FODMAPs are the parts of our food that are, frankly, they're healthy. They're generally prebiotic. We've been talking about prebiotics. Our FODMAPs are generally prebiotic. They feed and nourish the healthy bacteria inside of us, but they also can be difficult for us to process and digest. Why is that the case? The reason that it's hard for us to process and digest the FODMAPs is because we as humans, were not built to, to, to digest them. We have outsourced that to our microbiome. 
And the reason that we have outsourced that to our microbiome is because, believe it or not, there are 300,000 plants that are edible on this planet. So it would be impossible to create a human being with all of the appropriate enzymes necessary to process who knows how many hundreds of thousands or millions of types of fiber that exist out there. So instead, what we, what we have, which makes complete sense, is a completely adaptable, malleable microbiome. And your microbiome is tasked with the breakdown of complex carbohydrates, including, in many cases, FODMAPs. And so what they do is they work as a team. It's like, uh, it's like a symphony in a way where each one of them is doing their part to help us to process and digest these foods. When you take antibiotics, as we've been talking about, there's damage that is done to the good microbes that live inside of you. So what you've done is potentially caused harm to the team, this squad, the digestive squad that breaks down our food for us. And if you've removed a couple of those team members, then it's they're struggling to keep up. So the issue from, from my perspective is it's not that you're incapable of tolerating FODMAPs. That's not the truth. What it is, is that there's a certain amount that you are currently capable of, and it may not be that much. And over the course of time, we can strengthen that, we can make it better. And what it is, is you start with a moderate dose and you work your way up. So the next question is kind of overlapping what we've spoken about probiotic foods, but slightly different angle. Best way to introduce new and rare species of healthy bacteria into my gut? Well, that's a, so that's a good question. And what I would say is that here in 2019, as we're sitting here and recording this podcast, I can't say that we have a clear cut study that shows us how we can go about introducing increased, you know, rare, specifically rare species into our microbiome. Um, I can't say that I know exactly how we would do that, but here's what I do know. I, I think that a return to our organic nature is where to is where we would start spending time outside spending time you know potentially doing things like gardening interacting with the soil and beyond a return to nature in a way obviously it's also the consumption of a plant-based diet including fermented foods because the fermented foods are going to have their own microbiome and when you consume them there's the possibility that those live microorganisms will stick and be a part going forward. Now, whether or not they do that, we're not totally sure yet. But if there is a food that exists that's going to introduce rare species, it's going to be the food that's not sterilized. And that would be a fermented food. And talking about sort of gardening and getting, getting your hands dirty and, and being in nature, is that something that you try and encourage with your kids in terms of out, an outdoor lifestyle and playing and to, to encourage, you know, healthy gut microbiome for them? I do. I, and I believe in it. And there are, if you go, if you were to go down the line and look at things like, for example, gardening, there, there's studies that the, that the act of, you know, partaking in gardening reduces depression and, you know, so you can find sort of indirect evidence that it may be beneficial to our, our, our microbiome or that it has benefit to our health in other ways. 
But you know, really what it boils down to is that I think that our 21st century lifestyle, we have separated ourselves from the way that we lived for the entirety of human history up until now, basically. We have moved indoors. We have sterilized our environment. We have picked up a remote controller or a, a video game controller and opted for that instead of uh, a life spent outside interacting with nature. And I really believe that that's where some of the damage for the to the microbiome and also a lot of the stress comes from. So, you know, I just think about when I was a kid and the great memories that I had playing outside, building forts, being creative, creating, you know, games or ideas myself. And, you know, and then we bought a Nintendo Entertainment System and then things changed for me from that point forward. And I want my children to enjoy a childhood that includes those kinds of memories. But in addition, I really truly believe that spending time outside, playing outside is actually good for them. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to allow my kids to be the stinky kid. You know what I mean? Like they, they, they take baths, right? We clean them. They wash their hands when they come inside from outside. But it does mean that I do want them to be interacting with the world that exists beyond the sterile environment in our home that we have created in the 21st century. It's a great point because many, you can listen to that and think, oh, this sounds a little bit hippie-ish, but you know, there's, there's definitely a balance there. I don't, you know, and the crazy thing is like, I guess it sounds hippie-ish. I'm not a hippie. Yeah. I'm not, and I'm certainly not trying to be a hippie and I wasn't raised my parents. Neither of my parents were hippies and I don't listen to the Grateful Dead. So I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> this is just my honest belief is that, is that we are clearly, our 21st century lifestyle is doing our gut microbiome no I'm favors. I'm with you. I'm 100% with you on that. Next question. What are your thoughts and comments about gluten? Are you for a gluten-free diet or a diet with gluten? I love this question and I love clarifying this question because I think it's really important because currently one out of three people in the United States are either gluten-free or trying to be gluten-free. A lot of that has to do with the fear that has been put into them that gluten is the cause of illness, the cause of disease, that that this is, you know, destroying their health. And it's like a red herring. It's you're it, we're drawing our attention away from the real problems that exist. Yes, there is a problem with processed food and many processed foods contain gluten. So we should be avoiding those highly refined, ultra processed foods. That's the way that I feel about that. But let's get into the gluten science in more detail, because if one out of three are doing this, should it really be that high? The answer is no. The answer is no. Who should be gluten free? Well, number one, if you have celiac disease and you've been proven to have celiac disease, I will never waver on this. I'm telling you right now, you need to be gluten free. 100% indisputable, and there's no room. There's no wiggle room on that. And what's the incidence of celiac disease here? 1%. 1%. It's about 1%. If you have a gluten allergy or a wheat allergy, that is a different situation as well that I would recommend avoidance of wheat or gluten depending on what the allergy is too. An allergy is not, hey, my stomach gets a little bit upset. An allergy is you break out in hives. You can't breathe, your throat closes off, your lips swell up. Those are allergies, right? It's, it's dramatic. It's not subtle. And if you have that and you know that you've placed it with wheat or with gluten or whatever it may be, you should avoid that food. I would say that for any food. I would say that for peanuts too. It's like a peanut allergy. 
And the incidence of this is most studies would say one to 2%. It's not very high. So basically what I've just given you is two to 3% have a very clear cut reason to not be consuming gluten. And I 100% support that. But what about the people that have what we call gluten sensitivity? Gluten sensitivity to me has been misnamed. It's a misnomer. It should be wheat sensitivity because you get sensitivity within your gut, talking about gas, bloating, digestive distress, maybe some diarrhea, maybe some constipation. That happens after you consume wheat. So what's the deal there? Is it the gluten that's driving this issue? It's the gluten driving this issue? Well, they did an interesting study to show us the answer to that question and what they did. And we've talked about this before, but let's go at it because I think this is a really important study. This was in our, our hypothetical scenario, right? Where we spoke about a girl, a girl's journey. Right. This, this, was, this was the hypothetical scenario where we had a conversation where we're being very real about what the journey could look like for someone who's an influencer who decides to bail on veganism. And we talked about this. We talked about going gluten-free. But let me, let me talk about this because I think this is an important study. They took a group of people and they fed them basically a breakfast bar every day for a week and they measured their digestive symptoms. And each person got to try all three varieties of breakfast bars. There were three different types. Here were the three types. Number one, they could have a placebo, meaning the placebo has nothing in it. There's nothing special in there. Number two, gluten. So the second bar actually did contain the gluten. If it's a gluten problem, we should find it there. And number three, the third bar contained fructans. Fructans are FODMAPs. You and I have talked about these before. They're prebiotic. So they feed and nourish the healthy bacteria inside of you. That's a great thing. But you will find fructans in grains, including wheat, including barley, including rye. And you'll also find them in garlic and onions, among other, among other, among other foods. So you have these three bars, placebo, gluten, fructans. Here's what they found. When you compare the people consuming the gluten bar to the placebo, the people consuming the gluten bar, believe it or not, had less GI symptoms, less GI symptoms than the placebo. The placebo caused more GI symptoms than the gluten. What? And, and what were these, were these subjects, people with what they thought was gluten intolerance? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because if you took normal, healthy controls, um, then they probably would have no symptoms at all with any of them. Yeah. Right. So, so these are people with gluten intolerance. And what they found is you had less symptoms with the gluten bar than the, even the freaking placebo. But then they gave them the fructan bar and they wigged out and they felt it. All right. And they felt it. Why did they feel it? Here's why. Because this group of people that we have labeled as gluten sensitivity, we've mislabeled them. This is, this is a wheat sensitivity as a result of the FODMAP because they have underlying irritable bowel syndrome and dysbiosis. That's the issue. This is a group of people that truly have underlying dysbiosis, damage to their microbiome. It's not celiac disease. Or we're, we're assuming it's not celiac disease because I'm assuming that you've had appropriate testing to show me that you don't have celiac disease. If you come into my practice and you say, I eat wheat, and I get GI distress, I'm going to test you for celiac disease. I can assure you that. But it's not celiac disease, and it's also not related to the gluten. These are people that it's completely within reason for them to be consuming gluten. Why would they? Why would they consume gluten? Well, first of all, the main whole grain in the American diet is wheat. So if we eliminate the main whole grain in the American diet, we are making ourselves even more starved for whole grains than we currently are. 
And the recommend the dietary recommendation is for three servings per day. And most Americans are not even getting one serving per day of whole grains. So you're making that worse. There was a study that looked at gluten-free diet. And what they showed in the study is that people who go gluten-free, whether appropriate or not, showed increased risk of developing heart disease. Increased risk of developing heart disease. And that's a bad thing. So we shouldn't be spuriously going gluten-free just for the heck of it. And there's other nutritional value that you will find in wheat. So the point from my perspective is I'm not telling you to go eat eat ultra-processed foods. Boom. No. 100%, I do not agree with that. I'm also not telling you that you should pig out on whole wheat bread. What I am telling you is that you should not eliminate this from your diet because when you eliminate, you you narrow the diversity of plants in your diet and that creates problems. So keep it on board and consume it in moderation. Boom. That was crystal clear. Get off of me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a nice segue from that question to the next question. And this one's come in from John. Thank you, John. I have been eating gluten my entire life and had quite a meat-heavy diet. I was just diagnosed with celiac. I believe I would have underlying dysbiosis. What's the best way for me to heal my gut? Since I've been diagnosed, I've been thinking about changing to a vegetarian diet and should I take probiotics? So this is a good question and let's just walk through it real uh, sort of briskly if we can, because some of these topics we've covered before. People that have celiac disease have underlying dysbiosis. The dysbiosis is there. We know that dysbiosis is also the root cause of irritable bowel syndrome and a, a number of other conditions. The criteria to develop celiac disease involve exposure to gluten, the gene for gluten, and damage to the microbiome with dysbiosis. So we know that it's there. You take away the gluten. We need to be strict. We need to be 100% and remove it from the diet. And we need to be careful about contamination because if you go out to a restaurant, there's a high risk for contamination at the restaurant. Talk to me about the long-term danger of someone with celiac consuming gluten. If you consume gluten, if you continue, continue to consume gluten, whether you feel great or you feel horrible, it does not matter to me because you're putting yourself at risk for a, a T-cell lymphoma of the small intestine. And it is basically universally fatal because by the time we know that you have it, it's already spread so far that there's nothing we can do. So we don't want to mess around or play with that fire. Eliminate the gluten. That's 100%. And so when you eliminate the gluten, if you still have symptoms, then the question becomes, if I'm your GI doctor, the question becomes, is it your dysbiosis that I already know that you have, right? Is it your food sensitivity that I already know that you have or irritable bowel syndrome potentially? Or is it that there's contamination from gluten in your diet that you just don't realize it's there? And there's a very real possibility of that. So you got to really drill down on what they're eating. So we have, well, we have to drill down what we're eating and we also need to prove definitively. And to me, the best way to prove definitively is to go to the gold standard test, which is to perform an upper endoscopy and take biopsies from the small intestine. If I go to the small intestine and I take an adequate number of biopsies, which is at least six, then I will be able to tell you whether or not you have contamination from gluten. If the lining of your intestine looks as normal as any other person out there, then you're good on the gluten front and we don't need to worry about that. And now we can turn our attention to focus on treating your underlying dysbiosis, which may be causing some irritable bowel syndrome. And so what do we do with irritable bowel syndrome? We, we talked about this with Dr. Pazricha in the episode with her. So I would definitely encourage people to check that out. But the short answer 
is that we want to ease our body into a plant-based diet with maximum plant-based diversity. It doesn't mean we want to do a cannonball and just go, oh yeah, it's beans. No, ease your body into it. Do things in moderation as you feel appropriate to get yourself there over the course of time. There may be a benefit we talked about in this episode. There may be a benefit to a prebiotic supplement and there may be benefit to a probiotic supplement, but I would not sit here and universally make those recommendations to everyone. All righty. Next question from Jane. Dr. B, should we be reducing our grains and carbohydrates as vegans and fruit to starve bad bacterial growth? Think before you jump into that. So this is something that I often hear with regards to candida, which is a a fungal infection, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems to often come from Ayurvedic doctors and and something that they talk a lot about. What's the science, I guess, behind these bacterial growth and candida and and what is actually going on for these people? Well, so let's let's start with this and say that Candida is a normal part of the human digestive flora, right? So we have a balance within our microbiota that includes bacteria, good guys and bad guys. And we have fungi, good guys and bad guys. There's good fungi, there's bad fungi. Candida can be one of the ones that can be a bad boy. And not in a good way, like not like, hey, he's cool and fun to date. (laughs) And can show up in parts of the body and create and create issues. So like a classic example of candida infection would be thrush. People who you look inside their mouth, you see white plaques. The white plaques don't easily scrape off. That's a candida infection. Sometimes when I do an upper endoscopy, I find people in the esophagus that have an overgrowth of candida. And you can see it. It's visibly there. But on the flip side to use a stool test to check to see whether or not you have candida as if yes or no, do I have candida? Well, guess what? I am 100% sure I have candida. And so do you. And so do all these other people because it's a part of normal human flora. Most of us have candida within our intestine. And for most of us, candida will not cause trouble as long as we are supporting a healthy gut microbiota. In the same way that when you weaken or damage the microbiota, you can have an overgrowth of the C. diff, the bad bacteria. In that same way, if you damage or weaken the good bacteria, you can also have an overgrowth of the candida. This is the reason why thrush shows up after antibiotics. And we know from studies, very, very clear cut, that they are in direct competition with each other. The bacteria and the fungi compete against each other. What does that mean? If one is thriving, then the other one is receding. So what do we want? We want the good bacteria to be thriving. And what we see in the studies, which is very, very clear cut, you give someone an antibiotic and what you will see is you will see suppression of bacteria. They will drop down and you will see literally at the exact same time, move in the exact opposite direction, a growth of fungi. And then you withdraw the antibiotic and guess what happens? Here comes the bacteria. And there go the fungi. So it's proof of this concept that if you empower the healthy microbes that live inside of you, then you can suppress the, good, the, the candida that is also there and a part of your normal intestinal flora. The concept of using a low-carbohydrate diet, like a, a, a low-sugar diet, to me, I find it to be very um, misunderstood. So first of all, how many studies exist 
that show us that a low carbohydrate diet can impact the candida that hypothetically exists within us. There's none. There's none. Not not one. Now, that being said, we do know that candida thrives on refined carbohydrates. So where do we find refined carbohydrates? Are they in fruit? No. Are they in whole grains? No. Those are complex carbohydrates. What we find is refined carbohydrates are in processed foods, ultra-processed foods. Would I support the elimination of ultra-processed foods? 100%. But would I recommend that people who think that they have a, a candida infection remove fruit and whole grains from their diet, restricting those foods based upon the theory that somehow you are feeding the candida? No. You know who you're feeding with those foods? You're feeding the healthy microbes that live inside you. And what happens when we feed the healthy microbes that live inside of us? They suppress candida. That's what you want. So someone that presents to you clinically, right, with candida, you talked about then you could you can sometimes see it in their mouth, on their tongue. From what you just said then, I'm, I'm understanding that you would be recommending them not to eliminate these whole food carbohydrates, but to eliminate refined carbohydrates. What else would be involved in the management of this condition for them? Yeah. And, that, and that's a good question because, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm hyping up the food. And I'm talking about how you can empower the good guys and suppress the bad guys. But, you know, the reality is that, and this is a theme that I, I think is important. I, I'm the world's biggest believer in the importance of our diet. I, I believe in it so much, but it doesn't mean that I think that there's no place for medical care or medication. Um, I think that there's a balance that exists between the two. Diet is not a silver bullet that's going to magically fix every single one of our problems. You can change your diet, and that doesn't mean that the thrush is going to acutely go away. So me personally, what I do with my patients is I will treat them. I will treat them with an antifungal. For example, if it's thrush or if it's, if it's candida esophagitis, then what I do is I'll treat them with nystatin, which is local. So they'll swish it in their mouth and swallow it down and it'll coat and it'll take care and suppress the candida, give the good guys the upper hand, knock, knock the candida infection down. But in the process, I also want to support them long-term with their diet, potentially with a prebiotic to reduce the likelihood of the candida infection coming back. And this is, by the way, this, this concept that we're talking about here, one area that I think is applicable to this that some of the listeners may relate to are vaginal yeast infections. So I'm not saying that you just change your diet to treat your yeast infection. You have to treat your yeast infection. But then after you are done treating your yeast infection, it's really important that we optimize your diet with diversity of plants, feed the healthy microbes inside of you, and that there is potentially value to prebiotics and probiotics in the gut to, to prevent the, de- the development of a yeast infection in the vagina. Talk to me about the antifungal, right? You know, we talk about an antibiotic and it's sort of indiscriminatory in its action and, and can, in the process of wiping out some of the bad guys, wipes out the good guys. Does an antifungal do, uh, do a similar thing with the good uh, fungi? So that is a really interesting question. And it, it's hard for me to answer because to date, we have not found. So first of all, the communities of microorganisms that live inside of us are dominated by the bacteria. So they are the dominant player and they're, they're the ones that when we take an antibiotic, you're causing broad sweeping changes, right? Whereas the fungi are a much, much smaller player optimizing a marginal percent of your microbiome. And so when you 
make some sort of change that affects them, you're not really causing broad sweeping changes within the microbiome, right? So, but that being said, I have not seen any value, any, any studies to date to make it clear cut to me that there's long-term ramifications to taking antifungals. I feel this is just where I stand right now in 2019. I may change my mind. I feel much more comfortable with an antifungal than I do with an antibiotic. It doesn't mean that I would liberally use them. It doesn't mean that I would use them any longer than I need to. I would use them for the minimal amount of time. And I would always make sure that there's an appropriate indication. Next question is from Betty. Dr. B, my bloating post meal is so bad. I look pregnant and sometimes have to lay on the ground for hours until it goes away. Gosh. What's happening? I mean, it sounds miserable. <laughs> it sounds miserable. And it's, it's hard to know based upon. So this is an example of a person that if you were reaching out to me on Instagram and you lived in Charleston, I would say, I'm going to get you an appointment and you're going to come in and we're going to sit down. We're going to go through your entire medical history. I'm going to do an examination. There's probably going to be some additional testing that we'll do and we'll go from there. Um, and I will tell you that the things that I think about in a scenario like this, so let me uh, uh, go back to a theme that you and I have addressed in the past, which is that any person who comes in with gas and bloating, I am asking the question, do they have underlying constipation? Uh, because those are the patients that you will commonly find exist with gas and bloating. And what's interesting is constipation causes increased production of methane gas. And increased production of methane gas causes slowing down of gut motility and constipation. And you can create a vicious cycle. So if this person is constipated and they eat a meal and they're not mobilizing their bowels, then I can see where you're trapping gas like a balloon and you become distended, right? The other thing that I would be thinking about in this person is to explore the possibility of air being swallowed during the meal. So any air that is swallowed, it gets down into the stomach. It has to come out one way or the other. It's either going to come out through a belch or it's going to trap itself in your abdomen until it comes out the other end when you pass gas from below. So why would someone swallow air versus someone who doesn't? Well, and this is something that I have to tell you in my, in my medical practice, this is one of the least satisfying conversations to have for both sides, for me and for the patient, because it's impossible for me to prove whether you are or are not doing this. And the patient never wants to believe that they are actually swallowing air. They're not doing it intentionally. Like no one's intentionally swallowing air. So they never want to believe that this is actually real. But we do know that it's real. We do know that this is entirely possible to swallow air. And where I start is I ask questions before even telling them where I'm going with this. I'll ask questions. Do you chew gum? Do you suck on lozenges? Do you sip through straws? Do you drink a lot of carbonated drinks? Do friends ever accuse you of being an aggressive eater, eating real fast? Do friends ever say that you drink too fast or do you gulp your drinks? All right, so that line of questioning that I just went through before I, before I tune the patient into where I'm going with this, those are the clues that I need to know whether someone has something called aerophagia. Aerophagia means that they're swallowing air. And if you were to aggressively drink a beverage, you grab this, this glass of water and you Toss, I toss it back and I chug it. I'm taking big swallows. Those big swallows are sloppy swallows and I'm bringing air down with it. When I chew on gum, I'm creating saliva. I'm swallowing that saliva. Do you really think it's a perfect process to swallow saliva and not get some air in there when it goes down? No, there's some air that gets in there and it goes down. When you sip through a straw, look at the straw. Half of the straw 
is below, it's submerged, right? Because it's the water level. But the part that's above the water level, that's air. So you wrap your lips around it, you create a vacuum and you suck it in. You swallow it down. You're swallowing down air. Carbonated drinks, of course, swallowing air. So I'm looking for clues that this person is swallowing air and that may be contributing to this issue. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you'll find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. I'm soon to have a baby. So again, this is coming from the community, not myself. How, <laughs> how long should I aim to breastfeed for and what are the benefits? Oh my gosh, this is such a great and important question. And thank you to the person who asked it. Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. All right. Thank you, Jenny. This is, this is huge. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Because, you know, we need to control the things that we have control over in terms of helping to support the development of the microbiome in our children. So the thing you have to understand is when a child is born, their microbiome, they are borderline sterile at the time of birth. And then they have the rapid development of their microbiome over the course of the following two to three years where they go from basically sterile to the point where they're two years old. Like my son is two years old right now. He's a little tyke, right? He's a little guy. He comes up a little past my knee, but he has a fully adult-sized microbiome, the same size as me. What's his name? Liam. Liam. Yeah, Liam. And so sweet little Liam has a fully adult-sized microbiome, just as big as his dad. Yeah, Liam. <laughs> That's a boy. <laughs> so anyway, the uh, gosh, I'm distracted now, but let's go back to breastfeeding. We need to control what we can. And what that means is not doing cesarean section unless it's necessary. We really should be trying to avoid the elective C-section that's unneeded and trying to do a vaginal delivery when possible. And then we also need to be, we also need to be thinking about breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is not easy. All right. I'm going to tell you firsthand, we have two children and my, my wife had to buckle down and work through stressful stuff. There's nothing more stressful to a new mom than when your child is crying because they're hungry and you are struggling to get a latch or a seal with the child that delivers breast milk. It's incredibly stressful, but you work your way through that. That's the first two or three weeks. And the hope is that you can get into a groove, which does happen for most people, and you're able to breastfeed your child. Some people will say breastfeed for six months and then wean them. What I say is breastfeed them for as long as you possibly can. And I'm very proud of my wife who breastfed them all the way up to two years. And, and so the benefits that you get from breastfeeding, so the breast milk contains human milk oligosaccharides, which you and I have talked about before, HMOs. HMOs, in short, have literally zero nutritional value to the child. There's 200 of them, and they feed the healthy microbiome living within the newborn. So in other words, HMOs are mother nature's way of feeding the bugs that live in the baby's newborn gut. These are prebiotics. So you get that and you get antibodies, which protect against infection. And there are a number of other beneficial factors that you will find in human breast milk. 
So you want to continue to do this for as long as humanly possible because it helps the development of your child and it protects them. This is the perfect food. Mm. This is evolutionary food. This is basically mother nature saying to us, this is what you're supposed to be doing. So there's no need to cut off. Now, it doesn't mean you don't feed your child. You feed your child. When they're at the appropriate age to start giving them solid food, you give it to them. Which is like, what, four to six months? Usually in that territory, somewhere like that. But I think you should continue as long as possible. And what we see is that when you breastfeed your children, the child get a benefit. Decreased risk of developing obesity, decreased risk of developing type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, decreased risk of developing allergic issues like asthma or eczema. Um, so you go down the line and there's numerous health benefits. Guess what? There's benefits to mom too. There's benefits to mom too. There's decreased risk of several of the hormonal cancers, breast cancer, ovarian cancer. I think I told you in the, our first episode. So my, my mother is a lactation consultant. So she deals with a lot of new moms who may be having difficulties like you, you spoke about then about latching and it can, can be difficult, particularly for first time mothers. Have you heard of donor milk before? Oh yeah. My, so my wife, it's interesting. So my wife actually had an excessive supply with our first child. And part of it was that my wife started pumping before the baby was even born to build up the supply so that when the baby was there, she'd be ready to go. So she ended up with an excessive supply. And what she did was she started basically donating mm. the milk. Which is great. Yeah. So like, that's another option for mothers. If they don't have enough supply, they can, they can look for donor milk in the area, which from what I've read seems to be the best second option, right? Yeah. If you, if you can't get your own supply and also definitely if you have an oversupply to be able to donate because, I mean, a lot of like pre, preterm babies, babies that are delivered early, premature yeah. babies, they really rely on that. As they well. need it. Yeah. They need it. Where do you sit on infant formula? So if, if the mother just, you know, for whatever reason can't get her own supply going, doesn't have access to donor milk. What's what's your opinion on infant formula? And have they been able to replicate to an extent some of these human olig- oligosaccharides that you were discussing that are so beneficial for They're trying bacteria? to. They're trying to, but there's 200 of them. And, you know, so what they do is you'll find that the new trend in formula is to start adding in these prebiotics. And you will oftentimes see that they have a prebiotic. They'll put it on the cover of the formula. There's more of them, even since the last time you and I recorded, I've seen more of them that are available in the store now. But the the issue is clearly you can't replace the exact nature of what mother nature developed over the course of millions of years of human evolution. So we're doing it to the best of our ability. And I would recommend that you opt for a non-dairy alternative that includes these prebiotics. That's that's generally the one that I recommend. I can't remember the brand because we don't use it anymore. It's been a while. So I wish I knew off the top of my head. But And I mean, just to close this one out, obviously of huge importance here is making sure that the baby is getting the calories that it needs no matter what. Right. Okay. Next question. So this one sort of flows on from, from that question, probably more so for older kids. So this is once they're eating. Dr. B, would you recommend smoothie or juices for my kids? Oh, that's a pretty uh, easy one from my perspective, which is smoothies are a great way to sneak fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds. I mean, I, I don't really think whole grains necessarily, but that's a great way to Just sneak. put some oats in there. Sure, you throw some oats in there. There you go. Good idea. So this is a great way to sneak all of those health-promoting 
foods that also are high in fiber, but you're creating a very palatable way for your child to consume it. And what you do is you just don't be bashful about putting an appropriate amount of bananas and berries in there to make it desirable. Even some dates. Yeah, and some dates. And so make it a flavor that your child is going to like. Make this fun for them. Um, give them a big, thick straw, you know, and to the best of your ability, make it something that they enjoy and they relish. They look forward to it. And it's, it's our secret. You know, you don't have to tell them that you're actually sneaking the good stuff in there. So the straw one there, because we spoke about it before, straws are not an issue unless someone's having a problem with excessive bloating. And then it, it may be one thing that you look at, right? You're, right. Not, you're not ruling out straws. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> right, right. I just want to clarify that. Yeah, exactly. No, that's that's a fair point. And it, well, and part of it is when I'm saying the straw, you know, we're talking about these little children that yeah. are trying to figure out how to get the, the food down without Make pouring it, it all over their face, yeah. right? And I, I think- you know, even when I speak to adults, right, that don't necessarily love a certain food, I talk to them about using smoothies as a way to start to introduce it into their diet in a way which may be a little bit more palatable, a little bit more hidden. And over time, their taste buds change. And I seem to find that people become better at then being able to, to chew that food and eat it in a whole food form. That is such a great point. And believe it or not, that is exactly the way that I started on this journey for myself personally. Is as I started to experiment with changing my food, I went from picking up fat. I'm not exaggerating. Picking up fast food, I was the king of fast food. I went from picking up fast food on the way home from work. Taco Bell. Taco Bell would be one of the healthier versions. <laughs> <laughs> so I was the king of picking up fast food on the way home from work. And when I decided to start to, to change my diet, where I started was actually substituting a smoothie, and I would just make a monster smoothie. And it's just, the formula is so simple, bananas, berries, greens, and then you just throw whatever the heck you want in there. I mean, like, you know, I would definitely recommend throwing some chia seeds, flax, broccoli sprouts, broccoli sprouts. You know, I love those. Throw it all in there. But the, the, the base starts the same. It's so simple. Greens, banana, mm-hmm. berries, and just go from there and make a big one. And I did that as a dinner replacement. And what I noticed immediately is that I actually felt so clean, light, and fresh. And I did not have the post-dinner hangover where you got to lay on the couch and make weird noises for like an hour because you are so beat up like from the food you ate. That's still, I mean, one of my go-to desserts, right? And I, I do this all the time now is a couple of frozen bananas, yeah. a tiny bit of some sort of plant-based milk, some frozen berries, maybe a touch of cacao powder or something like that, blend it up. And it is amazing. Like it tastes after a while that I salivate thinking about that. I wouldn't have used used to 10 years ago. And now I look forward to that so much. But, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes later, you you just feel light. It doesn't feel like a heavy dessert. And, you know, the other thing too, I'm a guy who I love ice cream. It's one of my weak points. And shout out to someone that you and I know, Five Sec Health, who has shown us online how to make nice cream using bananas and i mean like it's incredible it's it's so good so easy yeah kids love it everyone loves it it. yeah get on okay next question we we spoke about oats just quickly then why do you soak oats overnight i think this person's probably seen me talk about soaking oats i need a lot of overnight oats is it because of phytic acid well that does help it does help. I mean, so generally when we deal with whole grains, we are processing our whole grains, right? And the different ways that we process our whole grains, sprouting or soaking or whatever it may be, 
all have an impact on phytic acid. And you can drop your phytic acid content by about 60%. But I think there's a couple of key points with phytic acid. So let's let's take a step back and explain what we're really talking about here. Phytic acid, people kind of freak out about it and they call it an anti-nutrient. Um, and I understand where they're coming from when they say that because phytic acid will will bind to minerals like you know zinc or calcium or magnesium or whatever. And it'll bind to the mineral and it'll form something called a phytate. And when it forms that phytate, it's basically going to pass through the intestine and it's going to come out. And so you're missing out on the opportunity to absorb those phytates. So people go, oh, well, this is contributing to nutritional deficiencies and nutritional inadequacies. And yet study after study after study shows us that we're not seeing that people that consume high levels of whole grains are having nutritional inadequacies. If anything, they are more nutritionally complete. There, there was one particular study where they looked at different dietary types and the least healthy dietary type was the omnivores diet, um, which is the way that most people are eating. And yet they're scared of these phytates and the most nutritional, nutritionally complete diet, believe it or not, was actually the vegan diet in the study. So Every diet is going to have its strengths and weaknesses, right? That's just the way that it is. Um, and it really depends how you're doing that diet, right? Right. So, but with regard to phytates or, or phytic acid, phytic acid is only there for that one particular meal. And when you soak the oats, you do reduce the phytic acid content. But what's left over is not to be feared. Phytic acid has been shown to protect us from cancer. Numerous different types of cancer, numerous different types. What are we dying from? 600,000 people in the United States per year die from cancer. How many people are dying from a mineral deficiency? I don't know if I've even seen in my entire career. So I think we're kind of getting ourselves kind of worked up and hyped up about this stuff. We're overthinking it. And that's part of the reason why I like simplicity of rules of let's not worry so much about the whole grains. Let's just enjoy them. Some good perspective there. Are there any particular herbs or plants, drinks, et cetera, that you recommend to help settle a stomach before bed? Hmm. That's an interesting question. And I want to take it on more of a dietary perspective as opposed to winding down before bed. So, because to me, we, we just spoke, uh, you know, 45 minutes ago or an hour ago about TRE. And so generally, I don't want people having big beverages right before they go to bed, right? But if you want to have a beverage with your meal or immediately after your meal as sort of a digestif to to help you to process your food, I completely understand. And one of the ones that I really dig is ginger. Ginger is so easy to basically make a ginger tea with a squeeze of lemon in there. I mean, literally, it's just you know, you could, you could grate fresh ginger. And actually I have this recipe in my book of how to do this with fresh ginger, but you could also just use ginger powder and add a squeeze of lemon to some hot water and you're done. And that's a great way to sort of settle the stomach after a big meal. Perfect. Can spicy food kill or disrupt the healthy bacteria in my gut? (laughs) Um, so it's interesting because if you were to take a step back and not study this, you would think about it from an intuitive perspective and you would think, gosh, if I eat super spicy food, I get diarrhea. And so that must indicate that I'm damaging, you know, sort of acutely damaging my microbiome a little bit. And I can't prove whether that 
is or is not the truth. But here's what I will say. The heat from a hot pepper comes from capsaicin, right? And capsaicin actually is a bioactive molecule with health benefits. And part of the health benefits come from its interaction with the microbiome. So believe it or not, when people consume peppers, there are actually benefits that exist throughout your body as a result of the interaction of that heat, the spice, with your microbiome to produce an effect. So jalapenos, we're keeping those, those bad boys in the game. I'm keeping them in the game for sure. All right, Dr. B, final question for this Q&A. Let's finish strong here. Uh, so how does alcohol affect our gut health? Well, that's a great question. And what we do know is this. We do know that alcohol, chronic alcohol consumption induces dysbiosis. Very clear cut. Um, we know that the patients who go on to develop cirrhosis of the liver as a result of their alcohol consumption, we also will universally find underlying dysbiosis in association with that. And the expectation among the medical community is that that is the pathway to developing cirrhosis from alcohol is through the induction of dysbiosis and ultimately liver damage. We also know that acute binge alcohol consumption is damaging to the gut. You go out hard on a Friday or a Saturday night, you overdo it. Then the following day, how do you feel? Horrible. Why do you think that is? You think it's that because you're dehydrated? No, you can drink all the water in the world to rehydrate yourself and you still are going to need an entire day to recover. The reason why is because you have pounded your microbiome, caused severe damage to the microbiome. And that damage to the microbiome is also associated with acute alcoholic hepatitis, which is inflammation of the liver related to alcohol consumption. Now, does one drink destroy your microbiome? It doesn't seem that one drink destroys the microbiome, although we don't have great studies to prove one way or the other. But what I do know is this. If I pull out an alcohol swab and I wipe it all over this beverage that I have right here, what am I doing with that alcohol? I'm killing bacteria, right? So what do you think happens when you introduce alcohol into the densest population of bacteria that exists on the planet, which is your colon? You're wiping, you're wiping something out. It's hard for me to make an argument that that's good for you. Now, um, it's interesting because people will talk about red wine and they'll talk about resveratrol, which is a phytochemical that you'll find in red wine. And they'll say, well, red wine is good, right? Red wine is good. Well, it's interesting. So there actually has been some recent data to emerge to say that resveratrol from red wine can help to, to reduce the production of TMAO from a steak, right? So we've talked about TMAO and how it's produced from animal products. And there is this assertion that red wine is good for the heart. And I actually think it's real. I actually think it's real. It's been debated, but I actually think it's real. And I think the reason why it's real is because we're now finding that it reduces TMAO production. But what's the best way to produce, to reduce mm -hmm. TMAO production? Is it to consume alcohol where literally less than one drink per week has been associated with increased risk of developing cancer? It's the truth. Is it better to get your production, your, your um, protection 
from TMAO by consuming alcohol? Or should we just change our diet and get rid of the animal products that are causing the TMO in the first place? Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, that, that drink, that red wine becomes a bit redundant if you're not making any TMA. Right. Exactly. You don't, you, you don't need it. And there has been, they have shown in studies that the regular consumption of alcohol is associated with increased risk of developing cancer. So why would we play with fire if we don't need to? Now, this is not to say that I'm sitting here and telling you that you are a horrible person if you like to go out and have a glass of wine or an alcoholic beverage. No, you're not. I'm just saying that I would not recommend the establishment of a routine that involves the consumption of alcohol. There's a lot of people, maybe it's a Charleston thing, we like to drink in Charleston. There's a lot of people that will start having alcohol on a daily basis, one, two drinks. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've seen women who develop cirrhosis on two alcoholic beverages per day. And they don't think it's that much. And they're just sharing a bottle of wine with their husband. And I would just tell you that I have seen women who develop cirrhosis on two drinks per day. So personally, I just would say if you want to have an alcoholic beverage when you're out at dinner, to complement your meal, I understand. It's not a huge deal. But if you are routinely consuming alcohol during the week, that to me doesn't make a lot of sense. Very well said, Dr. B. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. You're, you're an absolute guru when it comes to gut health. So thank you very much. And I certainly look forward to next time we catch up wherever that is in the world, hopefully Australia next time, and we can record our our fifth podcast or whatever it will be then, <laughs> maybe in uh, sunny Bondi. Oh, it's awesome, man. <laughs> we should do it from the beach. Yeah. We should move the Fent Proof <laughs> Podcast studio to the beach. That would be really cool. Well, it's always a pleasure to be on the show with you, and I want to give a shout out to the Plant Proof community because I'm so grateful for y'all and the fact that you guys tune in and you share our podcast episodes. It means a lot, and I love you. There we go, friends. I hope you picked up a few new things there from Dr. B about gut health. I know I did. If you enjoyed this episode, please tag us on social media at plant underscore proof and at the gut health MD. We would love to hear from you. Finally, if you have a spare minute and haven't left a review on iTunes and are an Apple user, it would be so greatly appreciated if you could do so. Thanks so much for tuning in. That's all for today, friends. Catch you in the next episode.